Well, it is good to be back up here. Last week I, I had the Sunday off from preaching and um, my friend Jeff Flint came and gave an awesome message on one of the Ten Commandments. Not lying, I think. And then Jim went and lied like twice right in front. Anyway, Jim, <laughs> hopeless man. All right, but we're actually, I'm excited because we're getting back into John chapter 9. And what we've done in, in John 9 is we've chopped it into three sections or acts, if you will. And we've already looked at act 1 and 2. Um, so I just kind of want to refresh your memory on some of the highlights of these different acts. In uh, the first part of John chapter 9, Jesus encounters a man who has been born blind, whole life blind guy. And... To cut to the chase, I mean, Jesus comes up to this guy and just spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on his eyes. They don't know each other. This is weird, right? So puts it on his eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which in Hebrew means scent. And so the guy goes to this pool and washes, and lo and behold, he can see. Now, some of the, uh, the main themes running in this first act of John chapter 9 is I think John wants us to see that we're all like the man born blind, right? We all are blind. Now, I know you can, you can see me, but what does my name tag say? See, you got problems. No, no Sophia wrote this. Um, we're all born blind. We all need the light of the world. And what did John chapter 8 say about who the light of the world is? It's Jesus. That's right. Thank you. New guy. Come on. Come on. All right. So, uh, so Jesus, the light of the world, comes in and gives... The offer of sight. Alright, we're all born blind. Now, when this witness, the man who was born blind, becomes healed, something cool happens to him. Jesus includes him in his mission. And we learn that the man born blind now becomes a sent one. He gets healed in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And then he becomes a sent one. And Jesus says, in the plural, you now must join me in the work that I've been sent to do. Which means that you and I are sent ones. Now, that was John 9, uh, act number 1. In act number 2, which was the following week, the witness, or the man born blind, faces fierce opposition. Everybody wants to know, how did this happen to you? Who healed you? How, how did it go down? And so he's all excited. He goes and tells the, the religious leaders, hey, guess what? This guy, Jesus, healed my eyes. Now, the leaders are threatened by Jesus, and they refuse to believe that Jesus is anyone special, let alone the Son of God. So they bully, and they threaten this man. And in the process of him being threatened and, and oppressed, he starts to believe more and more. As he has to explain himself over and over again, he starts to realize, hey, yeah, this, this Jesus, he healed me. I was blind, but now I see. And so the, some of the things we learn from the second act in John chapter 9 is that we don't need to know everything before we say anything about Jesus. Right? We, sometimes we think we have to know everything before we can speak with authority. All you've got to know is what Jesus has done in your life. The guy says, I was blind, now I see. That's, that's very freeing for me. I don't know about you. We also learned that if we are sent ones, we are going to meet with opposition. And that opposition, listen, that opposition is an opportunity to grow stronger in our faith. Pretty darn cool. Now what we're going to do this evening is talk about the third and final act of John chapter 9. It begins in John 9, verse 35 through 41. And just to kind of... 
give you a little bit of context before we uh, go. Maybe you hadn't heard the rest of it. I'm just going to start in verse 24 just to kind of give you a little context. So here we go. So a second time, they, that's the religious leaders, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that... um, One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. And the man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him and said, You were born entirely in your sins. And you are teaching us, and they put him out. Okay, a little quiz. Anyone remember the Greek word behind that, put him out? Ekbalo. That's right. Nathaniel, the man. Yeah, ekbalo. Great. Well, we're going to get back to that word. That's an important word. So they ekbaloed this man. They cast him out. Now listen. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is talking to you now. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who who see may become blind. And those of the Pharisees who were with him, they overheard these things and said to him, Well, we're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. At the end of verse 34, it appears that the man who was healed just lost the battle. He's standing up for Jesus. He's saying, I don't know how it happened, but Jesus healed me. And what do they do? They cast him out. As we discussed a couple weeks ago, being cast out of the synagogue is a little more serious than just being like thrown out of church. right? We talked about how, you know, if you get thrown out of church, I don't know how that happened. Let's say uh, uh, Brian ekbalos you out the door and something like that. Uh, Assuming you don't sue us or something, then you could just go to another church. But in Israel in this time, there is one place to worship. And everybody knows everybody. See, the the synagogue, or actually in Jesus' day, the temple, was the center of not only religion, but culture, politics, the marketplace, political world... um, Everything was tied up in there. So if you're kicked out of that community, you're kind of blackballed from a lot of other things as well. This man has risked everything to talk about Jesus, and now he's cast out. But just as the man is cast out, Jesus hears about it. 
and Jesus seeks him. They cast him out. Jesus comes and brings him in. He finds him and asks if he believes in the Son of Man. Now just a side note. In John chapter 6, it says that everyone whom the Father brings to me, I will not ekbalo, I will not cast them out. When the Old Testament, which is in Hebrew, was translated into Greek, the story of the Garden of Eden goes something like this, that God had to ekbalo Adam and Eve. He had to cast them out of the garden. Check this out. When we come to Jesus, He will not cast us out. It's an undoing of the curse in the garden. It's the beginning of recreation. Yep, I get goosebumps over this. This is incredibly good news. So this man is cast out of his place in the world, his place in society, but Jesus is there to gather him in. And I think it's at this point that John wants us to remember another story. Another story that we've already heard about in John. We looked at it several weeks ago and it's in the fifth chapter. We learn about how Jesus healed a lame man. The two stories are very similar. And in fact, to illustrate this point, Ian's going to throw the first slide up there. I want you to notice how similar these things are. Both of these events happen at a Jewish festival. The lame man's healed at Passover. The blind man is healed at Feast of Tabernacles. Both of these men have physical illnesses. We are told about the length of both illnesses. The lame man, lame for 38 years. The blind man, born blind. They're both told to go into water. The, the lame man, the pool of Bethesda. The blind man, the pool of Siloam, it's supposed to say. The healing of both men is initiated by Jesus. He goes to them. Jesus knows about their ailments before they hear about it, before he hears about it. Both of these men are healed instantly. He doesn't give them some balm and say, rub this on yourself ten times a day and in a month you'll be better. Or he doesn't bring the guys to surgery. They just get better. Both of these men face interrogation by the Jewish leaders. And after that, Jesus seeks both of these men out. But this is where the stories differ. Second slide, Ian. The lame man loves the praise of people more than the praise of God. The blind man chooses to talk about Jesus. He's unashamed about it. He chooses the love of God. The lame man seeks honor by the Jewish leaders. If you remember, he, he talks to them and they're giving him a hard time and he just tells hey, Jesus is the one that did this and he's over there, you can find him. And he, he takes sides with the leadership. The blind man is cast out. The lame man continues on in darkness. He receives physical healing, but not spiritual healing. The blind man, he gets a sight back, and he gets spiritual eyes to see. He gets new life. The lame man... His testimony leads to the persecution of Jesus and his eventual death. The blind man is the first man in John's Gospel to worship Jesus. Thanks, Ian. Why does the blind man risk everything? His comfort? The only way to live in his society that he knows? Why does he risk that and the lame man doesn't? John wants us to ask 
What would I do? And in fact, would you just repeat three things after me, just to get you involved? Say, what would I do? Is it worth it? Why? What would I do? Is it worth it? And why? John, the guy who wrote this gospel, wants us to see it is worth it. And here's why. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus asked the blind man, Do you believe in the Son of Man? This is the key to this whole section, this whole act three. And the primary source for understanding the Son of Man is what Jeannie read earlier. It's Daniel 7. Daniel was a prophet who lived hundreds of years before Jesus when the, uh, the Israelites were in exile. And he had all these crazy visions. And one particular vision, the one that Jeannie read, Israel's enemies are depicted as these hideous beasts, these weird-looking monsters, which is a very fitting way to talk about them since they oppressed all the people that, uh, that they took over. They would intimidate and bully and unjustly um, oppress their people. And then Daniel describes this scene in heaven where the ancient of days, God himself, is described in very metaphorical language, but language like this. His clothing or his vesture was white as snow. His hair was like the purest wool. Talking again about uh, purity of God, his holiness. His throne was ablaze. Anytime fire, uh, fire is a strong symbol for purity and holiness and also judgment that any impurity is brought to light when it's put under the fire. Thousands are attending to this Ancient of Days and they're waiting for one thing, for the Ancient of Days to bring about justice. The Ancient of Days takes power away from these beastly rulers, from these other nations. And then one, like a son of man, comes up. The Son of Man represented the righteous who lived within Israel. And in the vision, the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days and receives dominion. He receives a kingdom. His kingdom is said to be everlasting, won't be destroyed. And this vision is a kind of prophecy of an event that would happen in the future. This Ancient of Days thing was a prophecy. Now fast forward to our stories hundreds of years later. It's the first century A.D., uh, we're well after Daniel's vision, and Israel is under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. It was a popular belief. I mean, just imagine yourself. I mean, the Romans, sure, they, they let you think like you still had some culture. They would let you worship in the temple and things. But every single man, woman, and child had a flat tax that would be on top of them. They taxed you every time you crossed a, a border. They taxed you for Everything And it didn't matter if you couldn't pay, if you were poor, if you were a slave. They owned you. They owned you. Now, it was a popular belief under this oppressive environment that one day the, the Son of Man would come and establish His kingdom. All right? So, you've been blind from birth. You're reduced to a life of begging. You are a social misfit, an outcast. You're on the margins. 
Then you meet a guy who spits on the ground, rubs some stuff in your eye, and you can see. It's just the kind of stuff that Isaiah talks about, about maybe the Messiah or the Son of Man. It's, it's just what the prophets were talking about, that one day someone would come and restore sight to the blind and heal lame people. So you meet this guy and you want to tell everybody. So you go and you tell the religious, the religious leaders, and they don't believe there's anything special about Jesus. Worse yet, the very authorities that you kind of look up to, the ones who are supposed to represent God, the ones who are supposed to be trusting God for the overthrow of injustice, who are supposed to be awaiting the Son of Man, they kick you out of the synagogue for telling them about a guy who sounds just like the Son of Man. Have you ever felt like this guy? You're trying to do it the right way. Try and do the right thing. And all you get is everything, all your effort thrown back in your face. Have you ever been cast out? Probably if you've ever been in middle school, you've been cast out for some reason. Well, when we are cast out, rejected, in the name of Jesus, we're not alone. Jesus himself opens his arms to us brings us into His fold, into His kingdom, all through one thing, belief. Belief. Why is it that the first thing I think of is, what must I do? You remember in John 6 when they ask, Lord, what must we do to work the works of God? Believe in the Son of Man whom He has sent. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's the question Jesus asked the man. Not just, do you believe in the concept of the Son of Man? I mean, it was a given in this day that there was a Son of Man. I mean, the, the nation of Israel was looking forward to this prophecy coming true. So he believed in the Son of Man as a concept. But what he's asking is, are you ready to put your faith in one called the Son of Man? You remember, I've said this before, but in John's Gospel, every time we see the word believe, it's always a verb in the Greek. So it's never just intellectual. It's always how you live it out. So when Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's not saying, do you believe in the idea is true? He's saying, are you willing to throw your lot in with Him? To trust Him for your life? watch what happens. The man wants to know, well, who is the Son of Man? That's exactly what he says. And again, it's not so much as, who is the Son of Man? Like, we know who he is from Daniel. But, who is the Son of Man? As in, where is he? How can I get to know him? Do you know where he is? And Jesus says, I whom you see, and I'm speaking to you, I'm he. Right? I'm right in front of you. And how does the man respond? He, he believes. He says, Lord, I believe. But then he does something extra. He prostrates himself before Jesus. In most of our Bible translations, it says he worshipped Jesus. The literal word means to, to, to lay down, to bow down, to prostrate yourself before Jesus. So he says, Lord, I believe. And he gets down and probably kisses his feet or, or touches the hem of his garment. 
Now this is significant in the first century. It's significant because to show honor and respect, you would call someone Lord, which means Sir. And in order to show your allegiance to them, you would do that exact gesture. You would bow down before somebody's feet and call them Lord. Now that's very odd for us. That's not our normal worship stance. Uh, I don't know, what would we do? Sign a contract or something like that. But this is, uh, this is showing his allegiance to the man. The witness has now become a worshiper. This is awesome. And it's amazing to me that all throughout John, thousands of people, crowds of people, including the religious leaders, are witnesses to Jesus' signs. They've seen him feed 5,000 with two, five loaves and two fish. They've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him heal a lame man. And now they, they see the evidence of this guy, blind guy, being healed. Thousands of witnesses. Very few who believe. Very few who worship. Now, what does it mean to worship? That's a huge topic. I mean, we do a whole series on that. Maybe we should at some point. But let me simplify. In a word, it's response. Worship is a response to God's initiative. Response to God's character. It's a response to His action, to His grace. And it's a response of two things. Trust and allegiance. Trust and allegiance. The text tells us that the man worshipped Jesus, got very low. Pledging allegiance to Jesus is a radical move. Imagine, he's giving up his whole system. At least the leaders in the, in the temple system were the, you know, these guys. They had education, and they had fancy robes, and they had power. Jesus is a homeless guy that none of the leaders really seem to like. And this man is switching teams. Says, I believe, and he does this act of bowing down, of playing prostrate that says, I'm with you. That's crazy. Why would he give it all up? Because he believes that this homeless man named Jesus is the Son of Man. And here's the good news if Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of Man from Daniel's vision, then that means He's in charge. You may be cast out, ekbalod from different places in the world, but the one who is king will not cast you out. The good news is that God became flesh and dwelt among us, that He sacrificed Himself for you and I and the good of the world, and that He now reigns despite the way things look. This is our great hope. This is our reason that we give of ourselves, not because we earn any points with God, but because we have a better existence available to us, a new life in a new kingdom with new economy and new laws. Our new hope is that everything good will be redeemed. Do you know what that means? That there is not one wasted act of love. Let me say that again. There is not one wasted act of love. Have you ever poured yourself into someone or something and thought, and then just thought it was all for naught? 
the great mystery of the gospel is that when Jesus reappears and brings the new creation, every act of goodness and beauty and kindness and love that you do in Jesus' name will in some way not only be present in the new kingdom, but better. Any uh, C.S. Lewis fans? Narnia, right? I love the picture in the last battle. And they get into this, this new kingdom. And he's trying to describe the fruit on the tree. And he says, I, I can't describe it. You have to taste it. You have to taste it to know what it's like. But it's like the sweetest peach is dry. And the, crisp, the most crisp apple you can imagine is mushy compared to this fruit. It's, the kingdom is like that. Everything good will be redeemed in the new creation. And this is foundational, not only to the whole Christian church, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant. It's especially foundational to Leonard Street's Covenant Church. In our very core, in the very beginning, we adopted a verse, a life verse for a church. It's called a Zera verse, which Hebrew, Zera means seed. It's kind of the verse we come back to when we're trying to decide who we are and what we're going to be. You know what that verse is, right? Somebody now. You don't need to quote it. Just... Yeah, Mark 1, 14 and 15, which says, After John the Baptist had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching, proclaiming the gospel of God. And he was saying this, he said, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's come near, it's breaking in. And so here's what you need to do. Repent. Turn around, change what you're doing, and believe, remember, trust in this good news. How do we respond to that? We worship. Worship is always a response to God's initiative. Worship is giving of our time, our talents, our treasures. Oftentimes when we think of worship, don't we think of this Sunday, at least in our culture, it's true. These worship gatherings are so important, and the church has been meeting uh, for a long time, weekly at least. In fact, very early on, the church switched from meeting on the Sabbath day to meeting on Sunday, which is called the Lord's Day. The reason is, Jesus was raised from the dead on the Lord's Day. When we gather together, we're confronted afresh with God's Word through Scripture and song. We gather to sing praises and encounter God in prayer, Word, and sacrament. We give of our tithes and offerings as acts of worship, as dedications of our trust. When we gather, we strive to love one another, to encourage each other. I, I see it happening all the time in this body. Can't pull you guys apart just to get church started, you know what I'm saying? But worship is, of course, much more than what happens on a Sunday. When we testify to what God has done and to what He promises to do, when we tell the world about Jesus, that's worship. When we seek the good of the kingdom by standing up against injustice, we worship. When we aid those who are forgotten, oppressed, pushed to the margins, we worship. When we use our God-given creativity, if you have any, in art, design, planning, parenting, all for the good of the world, to the glory of God, you're worshiping. When you love God and neighbor, 
you worship as Jesus told us to worship. We're created to worship. Our worship is a response to the good news. Do you believe Jesus is the good news? be a great place to end the sermon, wouldn't it? But the text doesn't end there. In fact, it gets kind of weird. Right after this, Jesus says, You know, I came into this world for judgment. And it gets really confusing. And it makes you wonder, what the heck's going on here? You know, back in John 3, and then up in John 12, Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world, I came to save the world. So what is this, a contradiction? This is really confusing. There's two ways forward in this. First way is it's important to always remember that in most of Scripture, God's coming judgment is a good thing. Do you remember our call to worship this morning? Psalm 96. The people are waiting for God's judgment. They're waiting for Him to come. Listen again. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exalt and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. For He's coming to judge the earth. See, they're all happy about it. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with faithfulness. God's judgment is a good thing for the earth because that means the planet's going to be restored. When Jesus reappears, it's going to be good. God's judgment is a good thing for the oppressed because they will find justice. God's judgment is a good thing because it will bring peace and joy to all those who don't have it now. Second, the only time judgment is bad news is if we refuse to believe. If we witness Jesus in our lives and in Scripture and choose to look the other way, well, that's exactly what the Pharisees did. And John's showing us in the passage, that's not really a good road to take. See, the Pharisees, they overhear Jesus talking to this man born blind about blindness and sight and all this stuff. And they kind of, you know, they overhear this and they say, we're not blind too, are we? And this is a really neat Greek sentence. In fact, Janet, you should check this out. But the grammar, the grammar implies that this is, uh, they expected a negative answer. They expected a negative answer. So it's like, um, you, you know, you, honey, do I look fat in this? Um, what are you going to say? Like, that's exp- you're never going to say yes, right? So it's a question like that expects a certain answer. Or, you know, sometimes when people are kind of fishing for a compliment and like, oh, I didn't do that very well. But what they really want you to say is, oh, you did great. I mean, this is exactly, it's a, kind of an idiom, right? So the, the Pharisees say this, we're not blind too, are we? Basically, Jesus says, yeah, you are. You look fat in that dress, Pharisees. Um, yeah, it's not going so well with you guys, and here's why. If you, would just, if you would just say, we're blind, Jesus, and we need your help, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to save the world. I'm here for you. But the truth is, Jesus, even though he's a good king, he's still the king. He's still the king. And the Pharisees were saying, well, we don't want to side with you. It's like Jesus is trying to do all that he can. He's trying to say, listen, come to me, I'll help you see. But they're saying, no thanks, we see already. 
Quoting John 3, 18 and 19. He who believes in Him, talking about Jesus, is not judged. If you believe in Jesus, you're not judged. But he who does not believe has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Now I'm going to venture to make a couple of assumptions. I'm projecting all over you because these are assumptions about me. I'm just guessing we're in the same boat, but you can tell me later if I was dead wrong. I'm guessing, A, that you seek for justice too. Right? You probably look forward to a day when you don't get sick anymore. Probably look forward to a day when you don't turn on the news and see someone else dying of starvation or of a disease or of murder. You probably look forward to the days when your kids will actually listen to you. And No, if you're like me, you probably long for justice. I think every human being does, which is why I make this assessment, uh, assumption. Okay, That's the first assumption. The assumption B is that the sound of this judgment talk, it scares you a bit. Because like me, you've participated in mistreating people. You've not taken perfect care of the planet. You, like me, have at times been selfish, probably consumed more than you needed, even when you knew there were people starving and not doing so well. But, do you, at your very core, want it to be different? Do you deep down I'm not talking about imagining the logistics of it. Do you deep down long for change? Not only in the world, but in your own life. Do you need Jesus? If you trust in Jesus to do what you cannot, He's good news. If you trust in Jesus to do what you cannot, His coming into the world is not judgment, but good news. Jesus is good news for us, because when we believe in Him, when we trust Him, His judgment is mercy. His judgment over us is grace. His judgment is not only to restore the planet and bring peace and justice, but to restore us. Listen, you and I are made in God's image Greek word for image is icon. But we're broken icons. I just can't seem to always get it right in my life. And the promise of the good news is not only restoration of big general things like no more global warming or peace in Afghanistan. Those are great things. But it's also a very personal thing where your broken icon becomes healed and you and I begin to fully reflect who we were made to be, just like Jesus. Unlike the man born blind, we have the rest of the story. You know, in this, he doesn't even know that Jesus died for him. We know that Jesus gave himself up to be destroyed on a cross so that we could have new life. We know that on the third day, he rose from the grave and 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And you know what that means? It doesn't mean he's just hanging out with God like playing chess or something like that. 
To sit at the right hand of the Father means that the Son of Man in Daniel 7 has come and received His kingdom. To sit on that throne at the right hand of God means that Jesus is reigning. It means He's king, means He's in charge. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? Now, many of you may have been walking with Jesus for some time. My charge to you is how might your life, your life, not your Sunday evening, but your life, be more worshipful? What would happen if you brought Jesus into your home or into your workplace, into your business, into your play? Jesus likes to play. What if your recreation was recreation? Some of you may be responding to this message for the very first time. This whole news about the kingdom uh, blowing you away, isn't it? I want to challenge you. Tell somebody before you leave. After this, tell somebody, tell me. Because part of what we do here as a church is not just talk about this stuff. but We try and help each other live it out. What does it mean to respond to this kingdom life? Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, I thank you for the good news that you reign despite what we see. In fact, it scares me to think what the world would look like if you didn't reign. Thank you for holding back evil, for not letting it run rampant. Thank you for the good we see breaking in all the time. Thank you for the hope we have in you. Jesus, we confess that we are broken image bearers, broken icons. And so many times we are as blind as the Pharisees. Oh, Spirit, help us not to become arrogant and prideful to think that we can see on our own. Jesus, we declare our need for you to open our eyes, to renew us and remake us. And thank you, Lord, for the great privilege of joining you in your mission. Thank you for including us, for choosing to do so much in the world through people like us, through your church and those who respond to your call. Lord, as, as a local church, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Give us courage to stand up against injustice. Give us generosity, Lord. Help us not to fear running out of resources. For you are good all the time. Amen.